My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I am joined uh, by none other than Steve Saylor. Um, I know Steve doesn't need an introduction for, for most of my audience. People know who Steve is. Uh, but for the few stragglers who, who might not know about Steve, he is a uh, journalist, uh, an Ur blogger, one of the, the, the oldest bloggers, not in age, but in, ter- in terms of activity. Both. <laughs> Both. Um, well, last blogger standing, perhaps. Yeah, and and an international man of mystery, and probably um, a great intellectual, not by the color of his hair, but just by the fact that he is extremely red, but often uh, not cited. So uh, welcome, Steve. Howdy, thanks for having me here. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, it's needless to say that you are one of the most requested people uh, to, to come on the show which is dedicated to exactly uh, that type of intellectual that you so well represent, the, the, the gray uh, you know, zone of, of intellectuals, the people that are often uh, read but not really cited. Um, so um, I wanted to start off our discussion with something um, a bit gentle before we slam head on into the Excel sheet of uncomfortable facts. Um, it's about your, um, your, you growing up in California, because California is... Uh, an area of the world that is really small, but it casts a shadow as big as, you know, the entire planet. Um, we're speaking now from Romania. I mean, I'm obviously in many ways very influenced from California. Uh, I'm, it's, it's a place that I've never been to. Um, I've, you know, I've only seen about it in movies and I've, uh, all of the culture from there has been passed down onto me through all of the media that's coming out of there. Uh, but you grew up there. Um, and how, how has, California changed, and and how has California changed you personally? Well, let's see. I mean, mostly it's gotten more expensive. I mean, it was a really good deal. Um, Back in the 1830s, a Harvard student took a sabbatical. His name was Richard Henry Dana, and he went around Cape Horn uh, as a sailor uh, on a on a Boston trading ship going up and down the coast of California. And he came back, he wrote a bestseller called Two Years Before the Mast. And one of the things he told the American audience was, California, wow, it's like the best place, and practically nobody lives there. Uh, he especially emphasized the San Francisco Bay Area as barely... Uh, of interest to the the Mexican government, nobody's there, and it's incredible. So over the centuries, the population's grown dramatically, and not surprisingly, it's gotten really expensive. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it's it's a higher class place than when I was growing up in kind of a you know Beach Boys uh, childhood. Uh, it's also gotten fewer eccentrics probably uh, today than, you know, today it's kind of Florida man rather than California man. 
represents uh, kind of the, the cutting edge of weirdness in the United States. Um, but, you know, those are those are two obvious changes. Um, you know, it, it was certainly it was certainly a great place to, to grow up despite the smog and, and some other problems. Um, but it, the, the effects of, uh, of po population growth, of demand, of increased wealth, you know, it, 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 makes, it makes life more challenging in a lot of ways. You know, that when I was young, it was kind of a, a golden age of easygoingness. Yeah, it's um, I wonder because, you know, it's uh, California is seen as a, this extremely left wing place. Have you ever been uh, a left wing? Have you ever considered yourself a, a man of the left? Uh, may, I'm thinking maybe for a couple of weeks when I was about 12. In general, I've always been some kind of conservative uh, by temperament. Um you know, my, my father was uh, an aircraft engineer for Lockheed, so it was natural to, you know, my environment to grow up, um, you know, as on the conservative uh, Republican-leaning side in the U.S. And I, I think by by uh, temperament, I've always been kind of a, kind of a loyalist, um, and you know, kind of leaning toward the conservative side. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I've never been that, uh, never been particularly strongly to the right. Um, it's, you know, I, I come from a background, uh, you know, I, I was a Ronald Reagan supporter in 1980. And that's kind of uh, represents kind of a lot about kind of my background and, and, and orientation. Yeah. I think that, um, that flavor of politics, at least now on the right or on the so-called new right is losing a bit of, uh, of, of its shine. Um, yeah, I, I, somebody was mentioning, um, yeah, that basically, you know, I'm, I'm not, Part of the younger generation that's interested in, in European political philosophers. You know, I, I grew up as kind of an Anglophile, you know, reading Adam Smith and Boswell on Johnson and so forth as, as a teenager. And um, whereas, uh, you know, the, the kind of continental names um, like Carl Schmidt and so forth, nah before my time and um uh, so like I can't, you know i'm not that up on recent ideologies um and i'm not even that ideological i'm you know more empirical and as, as i've gotten older and got more time to you know create my excel spreadsheets of data uh that that takes up most of my interest rather than highly ideological questions I think it's it is really interesting that um, even though you are focused on the empirical and you essentially uh, are are very connected to reality through whatever data sources you might find because they're getting rarer and rarer, but um, you come to a lot of the conclusions that people who are a bit more into you know this esoteric ideology and things like that come, but you do that through 
I don't know, analyzing the real world. You know, you just notice your way to maybe some more uh, eccentric conclusions. So I think that's, you know, that's why people, I don't think people mind that you're not into Carl Schmitt or whatever esoteric politics, uh, because no. I feel like you're, you're obviously, you know, one of us in some way, even, even for the theory people, because you come to similar conclusions just by yeah interpreting. I mean, yeah. I mean, my approach has, is sort of to think that there's a general continuum rather than a sharp dichotomy at different intellectual levels that uh, if, if you're doing something that makes sense, um, if at the say at the social science level, it's also going to make sense in terms of uh, your real estate decision making that if you, you know, if you say, oh, OK, yeah, that's a good neighborhood, good schools, things like that. Yeah, it's going to show up exactly in the social science data. And if you're going to take it to higher intellectual levels than that, they all ought to fit together and, and not contradict each other. I mean, a lot of people in the kind of conventional wisdom these days assume that there's some extreme contradiction and dichotomy between following the science and stereotypes, what people notice with their lying eyes. But I don't think so. Um, you know, I mean, for example, I've, I've been a social science aficionado since maybe I was 13 in 1972. And I just like reading, um, you know, academic papers that churn through a lot of data. Um, most people assume that they that they have to come to you know highly leftist con conclusions, but it sure doesn't look like that to me when I when I read them carefully and critically. It sure looks like oh yeah, that's connected to what people say about local crime rates or schools or whatever. Uh, that there isn't this sharp contradiction. Um, so uh, that's. Um, I think I think that's you know something I try to bring is is tie together the anecdotal, the social scientific, uh, and the the more ideological. It, yeah. it should all fit together and shouldn't contradict each other. If it does, you probably got a real problem. And it's uh it's you know it's a there's a lot of labor and there, it kind of takes a knack for um you know analyzing this data and also just you know liking the time you spend doing it and I don't think that many people are uh, are into it no. uh, as much I as mean, you are yeah it takes a lot of time it takes um but yeah it's I mean here in the U S um over the last half century there's there's been a big movement of guys like me to analyze baseball statistics in ever more sophisticated fashion. And, you know, I'm fascinated by it, but I'm not, I'm not at their level, but, you know, I kind of follow the, the Bill Jameses of the, the baseball statistical world, just working with, you know, social data from the world around us. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of who I am in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. I also think that there's um, kind of a, a level of, of status um, in just in, in going deep into ideology and, you know, reading the classics and, uh, you know, coming to the same relatively, you know, more unsavory conclusions that someone who is lower status might get, you know, like your yeah. your uncle has the same beliefs as Carl Schmidt, but you need to slog through, you know, the 500 pages of esoteric literature before you can admit that, or, or you can kind of associate yourself with, uh, with those, you know, things that are just derived from noticing, you know, just go down the street, yeah. you notice stuff. Yeah. So I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically a not, uh, caught up with or uh you know the 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 higher level european ideological thinking but yeah it's it's sort of like oh yeah your uncle and charles murray kind of came to the same conclusions from from vastly different starting points and uh yeah that's that should be you know that suggests that the two of them are onto something that uh there isn't uh that there shouldn't be a contradiction if if you assume for status reasons that um that the science should disagree with your lying eyes you're probably kidding yourself yeah yeah i think that's uh that was a very uh useful tool for me to to bring to my life in in the western world i, I lived in in western europe for a long time studied there um, just being from Eastern Europe, where things are much more, uh, they work a bit more in a, in a straight line, especially after communism, when, you know, the liberalization of noticing really went hard. We, people were allowed to notice and we noticed everything. Um, and we also looked up to the West quite a lot. So when I moved to, to the UK, to London, I was expecting the West. And what I saw was quite different. It was, uh, it was kind of, you know, a, a you know, speed, speedy ticket to the third world. And it was really shocking to see how there were no, there was no um, immune system against it. People yeah. were just laying down and taking it. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, we've especially seen that in the U S in this decade, uh, you know, the, the, the George Floyd mania was so obviously a disaster while it was happening, but you know, the prestige the prestige class couldn't resist themselves their logic led them to ridiculous conclusions which have have not been good for the country and um, you know if you're not going to tell the truth uh eventually it's going to turn around and bite you i mean it, the, the issue is that if you don't what what goes unsayable kind of becomes unthinkable and even inconceivable. And uh, so we've seen that, you know, with the big increase in crime and so forth since, you know, the racial reckoning was declared and, you know, 28 months ago or so. And, um, you know, the people, the establishment just couldn't see it coming, even though it had happened before. You know, it happened in the 60s with the huge increase in crime. I mean, really wrecked a lot of the, the great American cities in the 60s. And, you know, we saw it on more intermittent scale with the Ferguson effect and 
after when in the first Black Lives Matter era in the mid 2010s, and then it just came back huge, and you know, people are getting their cars stolen all over the place. A lot of bad things have happened are happening, and you know, it shouldn't have. We'd made some progress, and you know, for a long time at making urban life in the U.S. better, uh, but the people, you know, what urban elites then decided to 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 blow up a lot, a lot of that progress. It's just crazy. Yeah. Do you think it's just kind of fear based as well? Like they they fear what would happen if the you know the truths that you deal in uh, about differences in cognitive capacity, differences in crime, you know, uh, rates. Uh, where uh, where common knowledge? I mean, what what would America look like? What would the world look like if that was you know just common knowledge? People would act according. But my, my, my friend, uh, physicist uh, Gregory Cochran asks, says asks, well, how would the world look different if I was right? And his view is, no, it's basically the world couldn't look any different because I'm trying to make up my ideas based on what. It, currently actually exists um now the question then becomes would the world suddenly be hor a horrible place if everybody went oh yeah actually um you know the bell curve is a sensible uh, look at how the world works as it was 28 years ago and things haven't changed a whole lot since then I mean, it's, I mean, I joke that, all right, about 15 years ago, there was a kid's movie series called National Treasure with Nicolas Cage running around, kind of doing Dan Brown type stuff involving the American founding fathers. And in the second one, a book of secrets, he discovers that when you get elected president, you get the key to open up the president's book of secrets that has you know, the secret of the Kennedy assassination and Area 51 and all the conspiracy theories are revealed in the book of in the president's book of secrets. So I'm kind of wondering if like when you become the president of Harvard University, do does the previous president give you the Harvard president's book of secrets, which turns out to be a dog-eared copy signed by Richard J. Hernstein of the bell curve. And in it is, okay, this is why we have to have affirmative action quotas at Harvard. You know, we're not going to get to a lot of Black or, to lesser extent, Hispanic representation that we think we really need to be at any other way. And you just can't get there without putting a thumb on the scale in admissions. I kind of think that something like that is true about Harvard presidents and and elite college presidents in general. Um, in the U.S., you hear a lot of. In the U.S., most people, when they answer opinion polls, are against affirmative action in college admissions, and there isn't any acceptable way to explain the, to the general public that, yeah, it's, it, at the Ivy League, it would be about 1% Black if 
we had a high, totally meritocratic system. And recently, it would be dramatically Asian, you know, probably heading toward 50% or higher. Um, almost nobody knows about that Asian test scores in the U.S. in the 21st century have exploded. And Ivy League presidents have to kind of talk amongst themselves and go, well, let's be honest here that nothing's changing. We've been doing the same thing for since 1969. And the all, all that all that happens is that the Asian percentage of high scores and high GPAs just keeps going up by leaps and bounds, and nothing else evens out. So we're going to have to keep doing the affirmative action. And probably, you know, the Supreme Court in 2003 said, well, only for another 25 years, and then there won't be any more need for it. Uh, but here we are, you know. Um, in 2022, and that 25 years is all, almost up and nothing has changed. Um, I mean, so the question is, if you, if you were allowed to discuss, you know, these, these giant differences, you know, in respectable forums, in the public, what different policies would you come to? And I think the main thing you'd do is you'd stop making up kind of anti-white, anti-male, um, you know, anti-whiteness defamation theories that have become ever worse over, you know, the last few decades. And, in, you know, in in the last nine or 10 years, they're, you know, what we call the great awakening. It's just become standard to denounce whites for any non-white shortcomings and in, in rather nasty hate-filled terms. Um, and it's, it's causing a lot of the uh, divisiveness within the country. Um, that, I think, would seem to be the number one result. Um, that we wouldn't waste as much time or promote as, you know, hate-filled, vile ideologies if we just went, yeah, it's kind of the way it is, and it's it could be all cultural, but it's probably not. And whatever it is, these gaps are, have been here for a long time, and they're probably going to be here for a whole lot more time. I mean, one of my standard jokes is that when I first got interested in uh, social science statistics in 1972, when I was 13, that, uh, you know, everything was different back then. Uh, you know, the, the rankings of of academic performance were number one, Oriental, number two, Caucasian, number three, uh, Chicano, and number four, Black. And today they're Asian, white, Latino, or Latinx, and African American, uh, or maybe still Black, but now it's capitalized. That's about all that's changed. Uh, 
I think we can live with that. I mean, we live with it. We live with the reality of these facts every day. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people seem to think that if these secrets were revealed, if if everybody got access to the Harvard president's book of secrets, you know, that that horrible, disastrous things would happen. So I don't know. Perhaps they would. I mean, it, it might say say more about how, you know, the liberal establishment thinks about the value of IQ and things like that. That it's like, well, of course, if this were true, we'd we'd have to do horrible genocidal things. Um, I don't know. I mean, my people ask me, "What do you really think, Steve?" And I'm like. I've published a million words or so. I I don't really have time to think about anything that I'm not publishing. Okay, I've rambled on. No, oh, no, it's uh, it's it's all illuminating. But I also wanted to ask you about the. Uh, I mean, because the consequence here is that we you we have so-called liberal democracy as the the, the framework for the regime. Um, one of the core ideas at the base of this, kind of one of the promises of liberal democracy is that through meritocracy, you can make it up to the top. Um, and meritocracy essentially, you know, if you ask me, is pretty much IQ. And the top is pretty much some sort of IQ related status or, you know, some proof that you're intelligent and you can make it up to the elites or some money that usually you get by being smart about how you invest, what you do with your life. Um, so the, the kind of the, the, the places, the higher echelons that are promised by just the, the core idea of the regime are all tied to IQ. So obfuscating how one gets there and how one deserves to get there is, is very important to the people who like the liberal order. So I, I wonder um, what, you know, what, what's downstream of this politically? Because this is, this is what I feel that you know, just a completely materialist outlook on the world will get you. It's okay. How much, how productive are you as an individual? How much pleasure can you derive? How much utility can you give? How much money can you make? Um, and I really don't think that for, for most people nowadays, there is a lot of value outside of being smart. I think in a way, you know, the, the liberal establishment really does reflect what maybe a lot of people won't, won't want to say, you know, this is the same conversation that's not being had behind the eugenics discussion. You know, they don't want to say that this is, you know, this is how they think, but they really do think if you look at, you know, selective abortions, you know, genetic screening, all this type of stuff. Um, and it, I think it's natural. I mean, if, it's, if you have a completely materialist outlook, this is the consequence. You want to you want Gattaca, you want to optimize genetic output, you want people to be smarter, you know, design your babies, all this type of stuff. So. I don't know. What's what's your feeling about? This yeah, I mean, my yes. And, and my take is that. To the extent that the U.S. has a, has a high immigration rate, it's going to make the U.S. kind of ever more of a kind of meritocratic free-for-all. And that's going to be driven by IQ, by, by work ethic, and a few other things. Um, and it's, it's not going to be good for people who didn't get kind of lucky in kind of the genetic or 
the nature or the nurture lotteries. Um, I mean, for example, uh, Americans think, okay, you know, affirmative action, should we really be discriminating against some kids and in favor in favor of other kids based on their race? All right. Um, and, and the answer, aren't, aren't we past that? And, and those are perfectly reasonable things to think. But one of the problems is that because we've had a lot of immigration, especially from Asia, uh, the, the competition for blacks has gotten dramatically harder to get to the top that, uh, you know, it was big 50 years ago, but it, it's a lot harder today. And but we've also kind of put immigration off as a, as another sacred thing we can't talk about. Uh, so we keep we keep going on. And, wow, we've made things harder for our African-American fellow citizens. Uh, and what can what can the liberal establishment do? All they can do is is blame white people for it. That's that's their only go to solution. But, yeah, I mean, the world has probably gotten even more dominated by IQ than in the past. I mean, I, for example, Silicon Valley goes goes back really to the in a lot of ways to the Terman family. Uh, Lewis Terman was the first American IQ scientist who made up the Stanford Binet IQ test in like 1916. His son, Fred Terman, became the dean of engineering at Stanford. He, he was Hewlett-Packard's uh, PhD uh, mentor, and he pretty much launched the Silicon Valley system of tying together Stanford and startups. And uh, probably more than his friend, William Shockley, uh, deserves the title of father of Silicon Valley. All right, Silicon Valley is kind of increasingly conquering the world. Um, and not surprisingly, uh, it's making it more IQ-centric. Uh, you know, the only thing I can think of to avoid that is let's kind of let's go a little easier on the immigration. Let's let's try a few things to slow down turning. America into, you know, a total being being totally competitive all the time. Um, but we don't have a framework really for our elites to to publicly discuss that. And I'm not a big I'm not a big admirer of what they can come up with, you know, behind closed doors, maybe in the past, but um, you know. I think I think we're really suffering from not having open discussion. Yeah. And the um, I think the issue was on the right wing. It was all I mean, the goals were pretty much the same. You know, neocons and neoliberals have the same goal. GDP line go up. And that is essentially pumped up by by a lot of immigration. And it, it does work. Um, I think what's relatively new now with the you know so-called new right and some some politicians on on the right is that. Um, you know, the economy is only important insofar as it benefits um, the so-called indigenous people of the United States. You know, the, the, the people who are 
the Americans, not necessarily white Americans, but also, you know, people who are currently in America and not came in off the boat five minutes ago. Yeah, I mean, my my take on it is that citizenship should be kind of like stock ownership. And 40 years ago, I was getting an MBA and the, the crusty old finance professor, like, he liked me because I'd always blurt out what all the other students were thinking, but were maybe a little shyer or less confident about it. So the question was, if you're a corporate officer of a publicly traded company, do you have the right to make up more, to issue new stock and sell it to, and sell it for less than you really think it's worth? And so I I stuck up my hand and said, yeah, sure, professor, because, all right, so the old stockholders, maybe they're getting ripped off, but your new stockholders are getting a deal. So it all balances out and comes out in the wash. And then he just thundered and went, wrong, your fiduciary duty is to the old stockholders, the current stockholders, not to the new stockholders. So... That's always struck me like, oh, yeah, actually being an American citizen should have come with some privileges and we shouldn't give it give away the right to live in America too cheap. Uh, But everybody's doing that because they're not supposed to have this kind of discussion about it. Um, And when I say it, people go, oh, yeah, that's kind of right. The the libertarian economist Brian Kaplan just went berserk with rage over it and started saying that by that logic, uh, we should invade Canada and enslave all the Canadians. I'm like, no, that actually is not a good, good idea. Let's not do that. But let's here in America be kind of cautious about giving away the the rather nice privilege of being an American. Yeah. I know that uh, Brian Kaplan has, uh, I think, a famous uh, pro-immigration stance. But what's what's your um, general position towards libertarianism now that you know so much about how the actual the dark underbelly of the world works? Yeah, I was, I was always kind, you know, kind of a libertarian fellow traveler, but I could I could usually come up with arguments that would be like, well, yeah, actually, the government should help out in this situation or that situation. Um, I think, I mean, in defense of the libertarians, they're quite they're quite a bit better than just about everybody else on freedom of speech, uh, on uh, on realistic debates, uh, you know, they're not they're not out to shut people down and bring up empirical facts that that are politically incorrect. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for it. it it's also you know kind of a, a liberty oriented culture. Political tradition is is very American. I'm not not saying it's for everybody, but it's it's for Americans, um, and it's 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 part of what's good about being an American. Um, it's 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 one of our traditions going in back to 1776. Um, so 
you know, I'm not uh, I'm not anywhere near being a libertarian fellow traveler anymore, but I do have quite a bit of respect for libertarians. Um, so I'm not not going to say real bad stuff about them. Yeah. Do, do you think there's um, something to be said about uh, a lot of our problems being downstream of us you know, or, or kind of the Anglo world, world trying to take a system that is almost customized for a certain ethnos, a certain Anglo type of mindset, Anglo type of, you know, Puritan uh, mores and, and things like that, uh, and trying to apply it across the world because it's a, it's the best system, you know, the, the spreading democracy type of thing, like it's a, like it's a virus and everyone should partake. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things about 20 years ago that I got interested in during the run-up to the Iraq war. And that was an important dividing line among conservatives was, is this a good idea or not? And the the pro-Iraq war largely won, and that was a big part of kind of running the, the more independent-minded people in the American right out of the mainstream. Um, but yeah, looking looking at Iraq and saying, okay, are they really ready for democracy? Are they going to be, you know, Germany after 1945 or, or Japan? And one of the things I saw was, wow, they, in Iraq, it's very prestigious and pretty common to marry your cousin and in fact, it's, it went up over the 20th century as, as more people had surviving cousins. You have this huge fraction of the population that's married either to their first cousin or their second cousin, which has, in the anthropological literature, all sorts of interesting effects, mostly in terms of making a society much more clannish. Because, like, you and your brother uh, have, a, have a goat herd how do you split it up between you? Oh, you have your son marry your brother's daughter, and then your your grandson of both of you inherits the herd. Okay, and that, that actually makes these extended families get along better. Uh, but it also means that each extended family isn't as related to the rest of the society. Whereas, you know, the, the Anglo world was especially oriented toward um, individualism, like away from cousin marriage, away from clannishness for probably, I don't know, the last thousand years, possibly. And uh, so a lot of things in the, in the Anglo world work, work that in other cultures wouldn't work very easily, but our language has become so dominant around the world that we don't really know that much about the rest of the world anymore. That it's real easy for even somebody who considers themselves an intellectual to just kind of be out of touch from, the, from how other people who, who don't speak English think. And when we do hear from people uh, in other countries yeah, we just listen to the ones who who speak English and talk and listen, watch our media all the time, and think like we do. So, you know, we've had 
it's it's a big problem, um, you know, because the America and Britain before then was so dominant that you know we give advice to the rest of the world all the time with basically no clue. Yeah, that's this is a a huge split. Um, you know, even in countries like like Romania or the rest of Eastern Europe, Europe in general between kind of people who are downstream from America speak English, especially younger people, and everyone else who maybe speaks a little bit of English, uh, likes a little bit of American media, but aren't absorbed into the into the empire. And it's it's leading to huge political differences, like the differences between generation are almost like aliens coming to commune with with the humans and it's uh it's it's very very strange and uh it's it's in progress right now i don't think the 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 consequences are pretty are are clear yet of what what this is going to mean in 10 20 30 years when right. these kids right. are grown I mean, up yeah you, people growing up listening to kind of clueless americans about and just absorbing the the, the american perspective uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm really glad that the Japanese aren't very good at learning English. I mean, about 50 years ago, the, the physicist Freeman Dyson uh, suggested that having a, a global language was a really bad thing. It was kind of like planting exactly one genotype of the highest producing soybean and then something comes along and wipes out all the soybeans in the world. Um, I'm I'm glad that there are parts of the world where you have highly literate people who just don't deal with English well, because it could, it could, you know, save us a lot of trouble someday that if, if the English speaking world goes off on a really bad jag which we seem to have a tendency to do yeah it's it's interesting um because uh, as as people have noted in america as well hungary even in eastern europe is a bit of um an exception and i feel that there's there's almost a um language-based force field around hungary because they have a very strange language uh, it's it's quite exotic um they're also highly ethnocentric compared even to the the places around them um, and they they don't dub American media. They have maybe subtitles and uh, or or no, they they dub American media. They don't have subtitles. We had subtitles, and that's why I speak the way I speak. And uh, and they they don't. They I'm, even young people. If you go to Hungary, you know some in Budapest will speak English, of course, but um, you know especially in in smaller cities or in the countryside, no way. Yes. They're very resistant I mean, what, to it. Well, I've been reading you know, New York Times coverage of Hungary for the last 10 years. It just it basically seems like every everybody who's quoted is somebody who speaks English and some Hungarian who speaks superb English. And I'm only that I'm only getting one side of the story. Uh but you know <laughs> it's it's hard to it's hard to learn Hungarian. I mean uh, so, yeah, I think I think there's some protection in staying out of out of the the English speaking world. Much much as I've benefited from it from having a, a bigger audience, uh, without you know being able to speak any other language. Um, 
So. Yeah, it's 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 extremely useful in in so many ways. I mean, I you know I can't poo poo it too much. <laughs> I have to say I've benefited from it greatly. I mean, my husband's from New Zealand, so I mean, wouldn't wouldn't be possible otherwise. He doesn't speak any Romanian, as you can imagine. Um, so yeah, it's it's all um, it's all downstream from that. Um, I also wanted to ask you about um, the legacy of Barack Obama. You've written a book on this, and uh, I wonder what you um, what you think about the book and about Barack Obama's legacy, given the fact that you know Joe Biden is now in office. Um, he's he still seems to be kind of the 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 gray eminence behind a lot of American politics. I mean, what what is the importance of Barack Obama? I mean, I'm mildly positive about Obama. Um, my argument when I wrote a book about him in 2008 uh, was that if you if you read his memoirs carefully, I think he's he's he was he was very cautious. I argued that his first term as president would be quite cautious on racial issues. And I think in retrospect, it was um, that then after re-election, things would get dicier. And that does seem to have happened, you know, the first Black Lives Matter era and so forth. Um, to this day, I'm not that sure whether Obama was pushing the so much the great awakening in his second term or whether it was the people working for him and that during the first term he he sort of he held them back in order to get reelected and then he said okay go for it in the second term i don't know we don't have real good coverage inside like democratic administrations how they work together with the prestige press and so forth it's you know I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot going on, but if you mention it, um, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. Um, you know, for example, in May 2013, I'm reading the New York Times, and I've noticed that the last year or so, there's all these articles about transsexuals, or as they're now called, transgender. And I'm reading this article about some guy who be, who's a mixed martial artist fighter and he decided he's now a woman but he's being discriminated against because he can't get paid to beat up women on tv and i'm like this and i'm like this is the craziest thing i've ever read but i've read a whole bunch of them Oh my God! This is going to be the next big thing. That the gay marriage is kind of locked in now for sure, and this trans stuff is going to be huge. And they're working on this. It's you know, it's a coordinated effort. But you know, how much was it the Obama administration? How much was it the New York Times, other media, academia? I don't know. We saw the same thing with uh, you know. Uh, rape on campus that led, which led to, to a temporary setback when the when Rolling Stone ran with a totally full 
a hoax-based story on it and it became embarrassing. But that was another thing that was the government, uh, the administration working with the media to promote. Um, all right. So how much of it was Obama and, and was it he just got tired of holding his people back and said, okay, you guys go do what you want. I'm, you know, I got my second term. I'm going to watch ESPN Sports Center. Um, I can't say for sure. It, you know, I also don't know, is Obama calling the shots within the Democrats still, or is he not really that energetic? Um, in some ways, you know, I could I could see an argument for the latter, but we don't we don't get good coverage of kind of behind the scenes on how these different uh, pushes come about. Um, so I couldn't say. Um, I, I think I was pretty much right about the first term versus the second term. Um, the other thing I've, I've noticed since I wrote that book was um, how much Obama kind of represents the kind of global American empire in person. Because I noticed like going back and reading about Hawaii and why it be, was brought in to be a state in 1959. Um, what was going on was that the U.S. was looking for a way to increase its its uh, soft power around the world in the battle with the Soviet Union, and it was embarrassing that you know the U.S. government, all the senators and so forth, were all white. And then it was realized, oh, if we make Hawaii a state, uh, they'll probably elect a Japanese senator maybe a Chinese senator too, and that that would be good for the U.S. image. And that was promoted especially by two of the great middle-brow figures of the time, uh, Oscar Hammerstein, the, uh, the lyricist of Rodgers and Hammerstein, and uh, James Michener, the, the uh, novelist. And they teamed up for the, the musical South Pacific in the early 50s, based on Michener's book, and Hammerstein, who was half Jewish, half Gentile, was like, oh, look, these two, these two short stories of yours about mixed marriages, that's really interesting. That's what we should do it about. And Michener was like, oh, yeah, I guess. Uh, why? He goes, well, look, I mean, it's very important for the U.S. in the battle with um, the Soviet Union that we don't get dragged down by just being an all-white power. We need to have you know, more representation and of, you know, that you can make it in the U.S. otherwise. And so Michener picked up on that and like his, his huge bestseller in 1960, Hawaii, the number one bestseller of the time, which probably was read by uh, Obama's mother and her parents and, and played a role in their deciding to move to Hawaii, kind of ends with this image of a mixed race golden man who's going to emerge out of Hawaii and lead America to ever greater global influence. And what Michener was thinking of was going to be somebody who was, was part white, part East Asian, 
but it kind of turned it, but it turned out to be Obama. And I was like, wow, that's actually uh, kind of kind of weirdly uh, premonitory. Uh, so yeah, that's something I think that kind of Obama was foreseen as going to be good for the American kind of global power. And that that kind of laid the path for for his rise to power. Um, probably he understood it to, to some extent, but I'm, I'm not sure that many other people do. I mean, Obama being from Hawaii, practically nobody pays attention to, but I think it's a big part of the story. Yeah, he he was definitely the the man of the hour and also obviously a product of his time and of the kind of 60s generation, almost like a, like you said, an embodiment of the 60s generation in so many ways. Um, but uh, there's also, I, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, this uh, Curtis Yarvin's theories about the cathedral. Well, and- I'm, uh, yeah, I mean, I know Curtis. He's a great guy. And I really like him. Um, I'm not... I can't say I'm an expert on on, uh, but it's just the the general <laughs> idea that um, you know there's there's kind of this decentralized um, thing that is downstream from s- some fairly basic ideas, but uh, the incentive system behind it is what powers it. So there's status to be gained, there's power to be gained in affirming certain ideas that are at the core of the liberal mindset. For example, you know you you've got this. Um, access to the meritocracy. You've got the fact that uh, traditional structures are oppressive. We need to dismantle them. And that there's always power to be mined by affirming these ideas, affirming them even more stridently. And there's no one going to be standing in your way because, you know, these are very much downstream from, from the regime and what, you know, what this core, you know, decentralized being the cathedral believes. So people who have a sense for power are always mining it in that direction. And they know there's, you know, no one's really going to come and, you know, uh, contradict you. Maybe Steve Saylor, but uh, no one, no one in the in the mainstream. I mean, the U.S., you know, a crucial element in, in the American tradition goes back to goes back to the left in uh, 17th century England, the English Civil War uh, and so forth. And uh you know, another element goes back to the to the moderate right. You know, kind of the Virginia tradition, um, but it you know it couldn't be full blown aristocracy. So America's always been kind of a progressive country, and, and there's a lot of good things about it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Obama, um, his. Uh, you know his his American family side. You know his his great uncle's name was named Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, and um, uh, you know so Obama is kind of closely tied to the kind of the the Northern United States uh, tradition that grew out of the Puritans of New England and so forth. Um, and you know, I, I've read interviews with his his like parents' uh, relatives, and they're you know very intelligent, well-spoken people. And um, 
you know, are, are fine representatives of the of the Northern American progressive tradition. So. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely um, a, a, an interesting mixture of both. And um, what do you think about the, um, the the theory that the fact that he is mixed race is also something that uh, that you know powered his uh, interest in politics? Um, it seems to be a, a, a template for a lot of people who are very politically active and organizing, so-called organizing. Yeah, fr- a friend of mine who who watches a lot of MSNBC started noticing 2015 time frame as you're starting to have you know wokeness becomes ever more powerful that oh if you're looking if you're looking at campus uh, you know activists boy you're sure getting a lot of kind of obama types who look like they've got one white parent and one black parent and so forth and and that you know, kind of Obama is is a role model. I mean, I think I think Obama is a lot better than the than the woke people. He's kind of cautious by nature. He's also, I mean, he's good at kind of understanding other people's point of view. Um, but uh, he's kind of kind of set off uh, whether by planning it or just by not running out of uh, energy to stand in the way of the woke he kind of led to kind of this uh this woke revolution that's that's i first noticed about 2013 um and it's you know made itself pretty obnoxious since then yeah he's definitely been a, a good icon for for the movement um, you've you've made some some comments at one point. I think it was in a in a clubhouse chat. I don't think you've been on clubhouse many times, but I w- I was there when you were just once. Yeah, well that that's great because <laughs> that was the one the one time I was there as well. Um, uh, you said something about anonymity and that you um, you would kind of, um, advise people nowadays if they want to be spicy about certain subjects to maybe try to do it in, in an anonymous way before they become a, f- a figure associated with that do you think do you still believe that uh yeah i think i mean I'm, i think there's a lot to be said for kind of a mark twain type pseudonym that people don't necessarily notice is uh is a pseudonym um i mean somebody can f- figure out who you are and track you down if you if you make enough enemies and publish your your real name on the other hand, most people don't care enough. Um, so there's a lot to be said, or you just don't want the world out there like hating you. Now, I I haven't run into into problem too many problems. Uh, I mean, it's partly I live in Southern California. I'm a native of Los Angeles, and if you tell somebody on a few occasions, when I tell people I'm a writer, they go, oh. What do you write? Movies or TV? I go, oh, like stuff that doesn't pay as well. And they go, oh, that's interesting. And you can see they've lost interest. I mean, the, the nice thing about LA is that nobody, you know, nobody cares. You know, you're not, you're not, you're not, we got, we have real celebrities here and no, and absolutely nobody cares about micro internet uh, names. Um, so, 
there's a lot of advantages there, but you know, there, there can be ramifications and, and for personal reasons, I don't want to get into them, but I, I would advise people, um, you know, create a Mark Twain type brand name for yourself and to, to and use that, um, you know, and, and keep, keep your, your personal name to yourself. Um, you know, people did that for hundreds of years and then it, it faded out of standard operation. Not that, you know, maybe in the 19th century for writers, you know, it was common in the 18th century. Uh, so, you know, be, don't figure that it's like, well, I'm brave and, and this won't cause any problems for people around me. But um, so that's my advice. I, did, I didn't follow it myself. I was like, oh, maybe I should make up a name. And I go like, oh, well, how do I get, if, if somebody, if a newspaper sends me a check for an opinion column, how do I cash it? Hmm, well, there's got to be a way, but it's too much work. I'll just use it, put my real name in. So here I am. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you went back, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years, would, would you have uh, still used your, or yeah, no. still gone? No? I'd, I'd, I'd have made up a name and you know, made it, made it my brand and gone with that. And I would have, I would have got called up the bank and asked them about it and found somebody to tell me it wasn't really that hard. Yeah. Yeah. Now there are many ways. I think there's much more um, of an easy route to get paid if you're anonymous, you know, yeah. crypto and all this type of stuff. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've had that, that uh, thought myself, I had a, a pseudonym for about a week and then I had similar thoughts to you and I just moved on to my my real name just out of comfort but um yeah I think for for me it was a little bit easier just because I I'm not in you know the the heart of the American empire like you are and I'm just kind of reporting on it from far away I don't think I'm that interesting to the powers uh, and yeah so it's a bit easier yeah. I haven't had any uh, negative effects up up to this point um but you've um, you've coined a kind of an important term, I think, uh, the human biodiversity, which is uh, is is that yeah, true? I mean, in, in nineteen, yeah, I was. Um, I didn't coin it in nineteen ninety nine. I said, oh well, you know, the sub. I'm I'm interested as a sports fan in differences in how people. Uh, what sports they're good at that has some correlation to who their ancestors were, which is of course related to race. And uh, that's, that's an interesting subject. And at the time, uh, Edward O. Wilson, the, the evolutionary theorist naturalist was, was pushing the word biodiversity, you know, like save the rains forests so we don't lose all these species. So I said, oh, well, I'm, I mean, what I'm really interested in is kind of this human biodiversity. I mean, it's, um, I'm inter it's kind of the nature side of nature and nurture. I'm also really interested in the nurture side, but it seems like there's kind of a niche here. So then I immediately typed the term human biodiversity into a, a search engine and found that there'd been one book published with that title by uh, anthropologist Jonathan Marks. So, um, so I didn't coin the term, but it does, it is sort of associated with me. Yeah, it's a, it's an, an interesting and important term just because it's, uh, it kind of gives, um, 
I don't know, not not necessarily respectability, but it's it's self-explanatory. And even just just looking at it, you know that there's, you know, there's there's a whole field of science opening up underneath it that's, you know, undeniably interesting and true. Um, And yeah, I don't know. There's there's something um, something. I mean, I've I've been a, you know, I've been a sports fan all my life and we 1968 and I went to a USC football game. It was like the big game of the year. And the USC running back, there were two All-Americans playing, a white guy from Oregon State named Bill Enyart, who was real strong, not real fast, and a black guy for USC named O.J. Simpson, who was real strong, but really, really fast. And, you know, they played a great game and everything, but it kind of opened my eyes to a pattern Oh, yeah, the black football players tend to be a bit faster than the white football players. And I've thought about it for a long time, but I can't really see like a a nurture reason or reason why racism makes OJ run faster than the white guy. Um, So it seemed pretty obvious. And there there are these patterns and you can watch the Olympics and they show up all the time. And if there's patterns in sports, which is super competitive, there's probably uh, biology-related patterns in, in, in other areas. Uh, now, that doesn't prove there are, or it doesn't prove the ones you come up with are right, but it sure makes it seem like basically plausible and interesting to think about. So, you know, thinking about nature and nurture is kind of a kind of the big time of intellectual life in a lot of ways. It's been that way for a long time. Yeah. And I think one of the more interesting debates you were in, uh, engaged in is the uh, kind of uh, abortions effect on crime debate with the uh, free economics uh, professors. Yeah, um, that was, um, yeah, that was, uh, it goes back to, to 1999. And it's, it's very interesting. I'm not sure who in the, ultimately is right. Um, but uh, University of Chicago economist Stephen Levitt, who published a bestseller in 2005 called Freakonomics, um, went around arguing that legalizing abortion in the U.S. from 1970 to 1973 uh, is why the crime rate was lower in 1997 than in 1985. And he got a lot of good publicity for this, and everybody went, wow, that, that makes sense. It's, you know, you know, we don't have as many of the unwanted. Uh, so I pointed out that, well, yeah, the crime rate was lower, you know, in 1997 than 1985, but it was higher in 1991 than 85. And in fact, it was probably it was highest. Um, the the homicide rate for teens went through the roof. Teens were born in the few years after Roe v. Wade in 1973 was extremely high, and especially for black teens. Now, the reason was, of course, that that was the crack era from like the wire and so forth, and just a crazy amount of uh, of shootings especially by uh, black youth. Um, So 
I pointed out a bunch of reasons why, you know, the evidence that Levitt brought forward doesn't prove his theory. And then eventually it turned out in 2005, some, some less known economists went back and tried to replicate his results and went, oh, wait a minute, he made an error in his computer code right here. And that's, that's why the numbers don't come out. All right. On the other hand, I can't prove that um, that there isn't a Freakonomics effect. It's just it's just pretty it's just pretty modest. Um, the the crack wars were gigantic in their effects on crime, especially the best measured crime of murder. Um, maybe maybe there's some effect today. I don't know. Uh, I haven't. I haven't gone back to look. We had this big natural experiment, or not exactly natural experiment, of, of legalizing abortion, and it's it's pretty hard to tell. Um, but it, it could well be. It could well be that it that era fifty years ago, that legalizing abortion. Um, kind of had mostly cut down on the number of working class kids being born and didn't have any effect on underclass uh, children being born. That's one possibility. I don't know. But um, it was it was an interesting debate. We, we debated in, in Slate.com in 1999, although since then they've taken our names off it. You can still see our debate online but it's it's just attributed to by authors uh that's interesting i think it seems to happen because <laughs> that happened multiple times i guess in association <laughs> with you yeah yeah i mean the, the notion that you know that i'm some horrible prime thinker is is kind of a strange one in that i'm highly reasonable minded about things um you know i'm i'm pretty good at reductionist thinking and and what what i don't have is i don't i don't have the patience to write out a whole lot of uh soft soap ahead of getting to the point uh because i've got enough of other points to get to um you know, there, there's there's people who are are more presentable than me, who uh, are real good at that, at giving all the whatevers and and notwithstandings, um, that people who would get mad at them kind of get bored before they finally get to the point. Um, but uh, yeah, I like getting to the point, and it's, but it's probably not been good for for my career. Um, but you know, you you sort of have to be who you are, and that's and that's what I've got the energy to do. Um, yeah, and a, and a lot of people appreciate it, even the ones who um, who don't who are not saying it publicly. Um, no, there's a a lot of people have uh, have asked me to ask you about your kind of strange buddy comedy uh, relationship with uh, Matt Iglesias. <laughs> He's yeah, um, I mean, I've, I've never met him, but I've read him for a long, long time, and you know, I, I admire 
uh, his uh, his insightfulness. I mean, he's a real good combination of creative thinking pundit while with also being very reasonable oriented one that um you know he generally doesn't get carried away with his ideas other than the one about a, a billion americans which is not a good idea but um you know um but yeah i i uh you know he's had influence on me i probably had some influence on him i mean you know he's he's an urban family man who does not like crime and you know wants his family to be safe living in a big american city uh that seems totally reasonable and uh you know so he tries to come up with uh, you know reasonable ideas to promote you know basic uh, you know urban walkability which is, is a, i think is great it just, you know, it requires a lot of law and order. And, you know, the Glacius is in favor of law and order, too. But, you know, he doesn't want to come out and get himself canceled, either. Yeah, so um, it, so it does seem to me like he knows. There, there isn't that much relationship, but it's, yeah. you know, I, I, I appreciate his his turn of mind. And, uh, you know, uh, I think he's, he's probably benefited from me uh, wisecracking in his comments for a long time. We've, we've all benefited from you always cracking in his comments at, at all times. Uh, it's, um, it's a, it's a strange thing because I, I know that he knows. And I also feel like he, you know, sometimes the way he asks his questions is almost an invitation for you to refute him. And that may be simply a, a way of him trying to deny, you know, with possible deniability, um, bring in some yeah, facts. I mean, that he I mean can't the, say. the Overton window of what you're supposed, what you're allowed to say, has probably gotten narrower over the years. And uh, you know, my my concern is. I always hoped that I would enlarge the Overton window, that I would um that I would put ideas out there, findings, statistical patterns, and so forth, and lead to academics and so forth picking up on them and like going, oh, we should do this in a more sophisticated fashion and look into this interesting relationship. Uh I sort of fear my influence has been kind of closing the the Overton window it's partly because because there's a handful of people out there online who if if an academic published a paper from an idea they got from me and didn't mention me um you know people at econ market job rumors would jump all over them for not mentioning that me and if they did mention me, you know, the SPLC would try to have them canceled or something like that. It's 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 an unfortunate situation uh, that the world has moved in that direction. Yes, I, I what I do see is kind of um, a fracturing of the of the Overton window because there's you know there's a general mainstream Overton window, and then there are subcultures which are gaining some form of traction within. Of some subcultures in the elites as well. So, what this is going to look like, what this is going to evolve. I mean, and I know 
relatively important people are listening to the general space, I'm not saying they're listening to this podcast, but they're listening to um, to what's going on in, in the new right and the people adjacent to it. Uh, and they're taking steps in this direction. There's also politicians that kind of reflect this type of thinking now. You know, there's there there are movements um, and the Overton window is pretty, you know, gaping where, where I'm standing. And a lot of things are being discussed, which no one thought would be discussed even, I don't know, five years ago. So I don't know what this means, yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's... it's... It, there's a lot to be said um, I mean there's a lot to be said for enlarging the Overton window of what's respectable I mean um, that having being able to have a conference and meet people who think kind of like you but have different slightly different perspectives so you can exchange views uh, in person, uh, you know, uh, Peter Thiel, or is it Thiel? No, I don't know. I shouldn't Peter say Thiel. that. It was, I mean, there was just a conference at Stanford, uh, proponents of academic freedom got together, you know, and big names like Steven Pinker and, you know, obscure academics who got canceled for some ridiculous reason and exchanged their ideas. Um, you know, getting together in person is important, and that's that's one of the things that over the last ten years has become more difficult. As uh, you know, uh, leftist violence against groups and so forth. You need more and more security, um, and it's it's unfortunate. Um, but um, yeah, but it's starting to change. I feel. I mean, I've. I don't know. I'm happy to have been invited recently. I think a few months ago there was NatCon in Miami and there were quite a lot of people there who, you know, were wrong thinkers. Some some on the SPLC list, some people who had been excluded from the right wing from, you know, like people like Paul Gottfried, who was kicked out by the, the fusionists who brought back into the, the fray now. So there's yeah. uh, a lot of things happening. So I don't know. Hopeful. Yeah, I, I hope so. And some of it is you really need you need an infrastructure you need you need people to to meet um and i hope so i mean i'm just i just haven't seen i haven't seen a good trend uh in sort of the 25 years or so that, that i've been doing this kind of thing um but <laughs> you know hope always uh dawns um so yes I, I i hope so and um i hope there will be many conferences that you will be invited to because uh it's it's high time and i feel like the the, the tides are changing um thank you so much steve i want to ask you the the last question the last question is the uh the question of the show which i forgot to tell you about before the show but oh, okay. you take your time to to think about it because it's just um if you have a recommendation of a subversive thinker someone who's um been maybe influential on your thought you know i know you you read a lot but you know it could be a writer could be even like a, a an actor a movie producer i've had you know video game developers and musicians being recommended on the show um, just someone who might be underrated and people just maybe haven't heard about and, and you you think would be worth checking out. 
the journalist who uh, kind of most influenced me, um, well, this, this isn't going to be a very exciting recommendation. I'm, I should, um, but yeah, the back in the uh, 20th century, I became really interested and became f a little friendly with uh, a, a business uh, magazine journalist at Fortune magazine named Dan Seligman. And basically, my kind of blogging was kind of pioneered by him. He became interested in, uh, you know, quanti realistic, quantitative social science that, that actually, if you don't, if you aren't afraid of what you'll find, you'll come up with interesting stuff for the for general reading audience. Now, Dan died, you know, at least a decade ago or so. But I did want to give a plug if anybody's, uh, if anybody like wants to read a good introduction to, to IQ, his quite short and easy to read 1992 book, A Question of Intelligence by Daniel Seligman, uh, you know, is available from used bookstores and things like that. And, um, you know, it sort of got canceled too in its own time. Um, but um, it's, uh, you know, I I would think it, even though it's 30 years ago, the, the science is still valuable. I haven't discovered a whole lot since then. And it's probably the most straightforward uh, introduction to the subject. Um, if if you feel like the 750 pages of the bell curve from two years later sounds uh, like take more time than you, than you've got, um, give Seligman's a question of intelligence a try. Um, now, the interesting thing was he was like a completely mainstream, you know, conservative business journalist in his day. Um, I try to carry on, and I'm kind of this weirdly unmentionable person 30 years later. But the trends were already heading toward cancellation in, in his day. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it, just reading his introduction to IQ would give you a good picture of where I'm coming from and kind of, you know, the kind of personalities uh, I've always found pleasant and intriguing and, uh, and worth imitating. All right, so that that'll be my plug for an old hero from a long time ago. Excellent, thank you so much, Steve. Right. Um, I want to point people toward your your blog, the yeah. Unreview, yeah. uh, and uh, to your Twitter, which is extremely. Yeah. I'm on uh, Twitter, I'm uh, I write a column on Wednesdays for Takis Magazine, T A K I M A G, dot com. Um, so, and I show up in people's comments sections, kind of whether they want me to or not. Uh, but I'm yes, and we all we there. all appreciate it. <laughs> the bat signal is a, is an important feature of Twitter. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Steve. This was this was excellent, and uh, I, I hope we can do this again because right, I have great. a backlog of a thousand more questions that you know right. I and other people want to ask you. So, thanks so much for coming on.
Okay, thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 